This podcast is brought to you by public.com, the investing social network. Public is a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. There are a few investing apps out there, but here's what's different about public. There are social features that allow people to share and discover new ideas, and the app supports responsible investing habits, so they don't encourage day trading, nor do they offer margin accounts or options. Features like safety labels on potentially risky stocks give members more complete context. Public has also opted out of payment for order flow, so they don't sell your trades to third parties. Public's community is about 40% women and 45% people of color, so its members come from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life. Conversations on public span deep dives into new IPOs, as well as general insights on financial wellness and category trends. You can even use group chats to build investing clubs with your friends. Head over to public.com to sign up and start with a free slice of stock. Get going with as little as $1, and if you're looking to transfer your portfolio over from another brokerage, they'll even cover fees for accounts valued at over $150. Some fine print, valid for U.S. residents 18 years and older, and subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. Hi, everyone. It's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from Fintech Today, where we talk about all things fintech. And today I am so excited for this episode. We have Ken Lin, the co-founder of Credit Karma and Frank Rotman of QED, who was Ken's very first investor on to talk about the history of this company. Um, for those that are not familiar, they had a multi-billion dollar exit last year in 2020 in the midst of all of this. I think they, they announced it in like January or February, so like right before COVID became a crazy thing and it closed later in the year. So I, I just, like I wanna hear more about the story, how this happened, and I think our audience wants to hear more about that as well. Um, Ken is still over in California right now. Frank, where are you these days? Are you still in the DC area? Uh, I am in Virginia. Okay, perfect. So still over that way. Awesome. Well, let's get started here a little bit. So Ken, talk me through that first fundraising process. For, and what was the idea you were actually pitching at that time? Because I feel like we've had ebbs and flows in fundraising environments. And it seems like there's so many seed stage startups that like these days that are just getting thrown crazy amounts of money and stuff like that too. It's so different raising money as a founder now than it was a decade ago when you guys were starting Credit Karma. Yeah, <laughs> great question. And, and first, great to be here, Julie. Thanks for having me on. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It was a fundamental night and day. Um, I, I think the fundraising environment now versus, gosh, when we were out, that was 2007, 2008. The context there was fun, you know, fintech as a term, didn't exist. And the idea that the banking industry uh, was going to be disrupted was so far-fetched uh, in that time period. And, and moreover, you also have to think about it, it was also the time period of the Great Recession. So when you compound those two or three things, it was nearly impossible. And, uh, you know, for me, I thought it was going to be the, you know, the, the, the normal story of going out and raising a seed round, your Series A, raising $5 million at a $25 million valuation, and sort of up and to the right you go. And the reality was sort of everything but. It was incredibly hard. No one understood the space that we were in. No one understood the opportunity that FinTech represented. And as a result, 
I think I pitched just about everyone up and down Sand Hill Road and got a no, uh, many uh, impolite no's. Uh, and I think that's where QED came in, which is, you know, I think they were probably the first company to recognize the space that we were in and what we were trying to do. And, you know, I'll tell you, it was a very different story in terms of the funding, not as a plug for QED, but just from an experiential perspective. No, no offense, Frank. But, you know, I literally after those hundred no's, you know, I remember flying out to D.C. to meet with uh, Frank, Nigel, and Caribou. Uh, you know, I think I took a red eye, met with you all at, uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I think it was on a five o'clock flight back from D.C. And I remember the, you know, the meeting going well because you all understood the business we were trying to create. But the difference also being, you know, by the next day, I believe I had a term sheet from QED, which is fundamentally different than everyone else in the space. So night and day difference, I think, between now versus then in terms of uh, the things that you could do with fintech investors and, and people recognizing the opportunity. So looking back on it now, it makes a lot of sense that Frank invested in you. But at the time, Frank was taking a pretty big bet writing you that first check. Frank, talk to us a little bit about what made you give them a term sheet within like 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because QED was relatively new at the time also. You know, so coming out of the Great Recession, uh, Nigel, myself and Caribou had a shared work history and that we helped create what became Capital One. You know, we were some of the early guard there. And, um, you know, when we decided that we were going to have a second life outside of, of Capital One and try our hand at this investing business, we had no idea if we were going to be any good at it. So we decided to stay as true to the knitting as we could and do things that we actually understood. So call it being selectively ignorant on purpose. You know, we chose a few things that, you know, we already thought we knew a bit about and we we're going to spend a lot of time digging in and seeing if we could be helpful to entrepreneurs in this space. So we know very, at the time we knew very little, but what we knew, we knew very deep. And what was interesting is when we came across, you know, Ken's business, um, it literally intuitively clicked with us um, because we would have been buyers on the other side if we were still at Capital One. So it's much easier to understand a business if you would have been a buyer of that service on the other side. Um, so we talked to Ken, um, we talked about Credit Karma and what it could grow up to become. We talked about the infrastructure that had been put in place. We talked about the relationship with the credit bureaus and everything he was talking about just felt like home. It felt very familiar. And it wasn't difficult to say, wow, if this thing really does grow up to become what we think it can, how powerful would that be in the ecosystem? So again, sometimes there, there are classes of problems that are much easier to understand if you're an operator. Uh, or an ex-operator, and you know, I think that we fit the bill. So it, it wasn't difficult for us to actually build conviction around this, which is why the term sheet came so quickly. Ken, talk to me a little bit about what that pitch was in the beginning. What did you hope to grow up to be? Like, how similar is that to what Credit Karma actually is today? Yeah, well, the good thing is Google Docs has a memory of all of these things. I actually remember writing the original business plan in Google Docs, so it's always nice that I can actually reference it. Um, and when I read the document, it's actually not that different. So the idea behind Credit Karma in the beginning was this idea that credit will get you good things. And if you really think about the financial services industry, that's what it represents, right? If you have good credit, you will have a lower cost of borrowing. You will have uh, access to, you know, better financing opportunities. Um, and that's been true in auto insurance. It's been, you know, true in your ability to rent and, and uh, you know, uh, lease homes. So. Credit affects a lot. And the idea behind Credit Karma, I read the original business plan, was 
you know, we were going to be able to facilitate an easier transaction and a lower cost transaction. Now, the only difference I would note is that we thought we would be able to also help consumers find lower cell phone services, lower, you know, cable and bundle services, because you're more apt to return your equipment. You're more apt to stay paying continuously for a longer duration if you have higher credit. Uh, those areas just never gained traction. And what we quickly found uh, was that the financial services companies are really looking for a way to scale online. If you really think about how they operate, they have a particular financial profile that uh, you know they are looking for their target customer. And with Credit Karma, we were able to help them find it more efficiently. Now, with that said, from day one, we really value privacy. And we said, well, you know, if you're going to change the paradigm of the internet, what's the one thing that you would do around that? And for us, it was not selling data. So the combination of those two things created a really interesting uh, business model for us, which was, you know, help consumers find the right financial services products, but at the same time, protect their privacy, protect the information that, you know, they are uh, giving us the permission to access on their behalf. Um, and that's what, uh, you know, Credit Karma has always pursued. And, you know, although our partners are a little bit different, the idea is exactly what we started out to it. Now, all of this sounds like it makes a lot of sense today, right? Like now that this is a thing that is very typical, a lot of startups make it so you can connect your financial services to different things. You've got retailers and others embedding financial services into their products. Um, I'm assuming along the way it wasn't so obvious and there were a lot of roadblocks and things you had to overcome. Talk to me a little bit about that. And then I want to toss it back to Frank to see, you know, just his thoughts on how all of this went and when, like when there was ever a point when he was like, you know what, this is going to be a really big company with a killer exit. Well, gosh, there was uh, probably no shortage of challenges. I mean, I think, you know, the early days were certainly around just fundamentally getting the operating model right. I remember Frank and Caribou and I spent a lot of time just trying to get the unit economics. So in the very early days, we, uh, you know, the economics were terrible for us. Credit data was extremely expensive. Um, and for us to make ends meet, uh, we didn't know how to do it quite candidly. So it took quite a bit. And, and, and also doing this in the Great Recession wasn't helpful as well. Uh, but you do learn things when you have to be scrappy. So I think some of the bigger challenges were, one, convincing consumers, right? Earning consumers' trust is never an easy thing. And you know, also in context, back in 2007, 2008, there were no truly free credit score sites. Right? The business model at that point was known as the negative opt-out model, which is you can gain your score, but you put in your credit card, uh, and if you don't cancel the subscription you just signed up for, you're going to be charged $30 a day. And consumers were sick and tired of that. But convincing consumers that we were fundamentally something different, that we were going to approach this differently, uh, that was a big challenge. I would note that convincing the bureaus that this was an interesting and viable business model uh, was another challenge. And we spent a lot of time trying to you know, show the traction there. And then lastly, the bureaus, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, partner, uh, the, the financial services partners themselves, you know, we had to go and show like how this could be fu fundamentally differentiated from Google and everyone else and how we could operate at the scale. At, so I think there are really three core constituents, uh, but we always focused on convincing the consumer constituent first and foremost. And, you know, 14 years later, we've given away, I think, billions of free credit scores and we've never charged a single consumer. I'm still proud to say I don't think we have uh, credit card uh, processing capabilities that we could still never charge a consumer's credit card, even to this day. Frank, what about your thoughts on this? Because you worked very closely with Ken and the team throughout their history. 
um, both through these early days, the challenges along the way, and on the um, eventual sale. Um, talk to me a little bit about that journey and what you found to be the biggest struggles and how you helped them with that get to this point. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually uh, reviewed our own internal investment memo not too long ago just to uh, refresh my memory on some of the early days. And it's interesting because um, when we first underwrote you know, the company and put our investment thesis together, the business had two business models, not just one. And you know that was a really important fork in the road that we had to figure out which model was the right model uh, with Ken. Um, so model number one was the direct-to-consumer model that we know today, right? This is what Credit Karma is. It's about offering free credit scores to consumers. And then in some ways, um, you can think about Credit Karma as a channel with data attached to it, right? So the customers come, they get something of value for free, there's a lot of data that's attached to them, and then Credit Karma uh, can offer them money-saving products that are better than what they already have, you know, in their wallets or in their their you know financial lives, um, because there's a lot of data that can uh, source um, you know better products that ultimately are ones that the customers are going to want, right? So it's data. It's a channel with data attached to it that's a direct-to-consumer model, and that really is the foundation for Credit Karma. But the other business model that you know Ken was working on at the time was really credit scores as a service. So if we think about all these as a service businesses that have emerged today, um, you know Ken was actually working on credit score as a service, where he was creating the consumer experience, the scorecards, the look and the feel, the way of making everything transparent. Um, calculators to help people understand what would happen if you actually did X, Y, or Z, you know, wh- how would it affect your credit score? And he was making these services available to financial institutions to then make available to their customers. So I remember, you know, the first big contract was uh, for the Sears portfolio under Citibank. And there was a big discussion about, you know, what happens if we can't crack the direct-to-consumer channel? What happens if we can't originate customers cheap enough, you know, to make the the business model work and to build a mass of customers that creates a real channel? Well, the answer was, you know, acquire customers by the millions by creating this as a service, you know, for some of the big financial institutions. Um, and you know, that was a really interesting business until, you know, Ken cracked the code on the direct to consumer business because that was much bigger and much more interesting. So the way that I, uh, affectionately describe my role, you know, in figuring this out is that I was the cheap bastard around the table. You know, I was the one who said, let's not just spend tons of money trying to build a channel if the unit economics don't work. Like if we can't acquire a customer cheap enough. And then they're not interested in buying the products and services that we can share with them, then we don't have a direct to consumer business and we shouldn't waste a bunch of venture capital trying to scale this business. We should go down, you know, path number two, which is credit score as a service and figure out how to sell into the big institutions. But once it became really clear, um, and Ken can talk a bit more about cracking the code on remnant media and some of the channels that really um, were the, the rocket fuel, you know, for creating the channel that Credit Karma is today. Um, that's when it became, I would say it was pretty obvious. I mean, Ken, you, you can 
you know, uh, share your own opinion on this, but, you know, faced with behind door number one or door number two, it was really clear that the direct-to-consumer model was much more exciting, would have much bigger outcomes, help more customers, and just is a more attractive business model. But we had to get there first. Yeah, Ken, how did you crack this code? I assume it is not just an overnight thing where like a light bulb went off and you had it. It sounds like there's probably a lot of work that goes into this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, Frank, I'd love for you to send me your investment memo at some point. I'd love to just kind of read it as uh, as a walk down memory lane. And I'd probably challenge you as the chief bastard around the room because uh, from a frugality perspective, I think we were pretty well sunk. You know, I, I think it was actually a little bit of the commonality of the way that we like to operate. Uh, but to, you know, to Frank's point, we were going down both paths and we realized that one path is just significantly more interesting, but more impactful as well. And one of the challenges that we saw when it came to providing credit karma as a service or banking as a service or credit scores as a service, however you want to call it, um, was that, you know, banks were oftentimes too slow. Uh, they often did not uh, create the functionality that we thought was going to be important to help consumers achieve their financial goals. Uh, so, you know, we really preferred the consumer side, but I'll tell this uh, quick, but maybe not quick story, but I'll try to make it fast. You know, we were searching for, we, we'd figure out roughly the unit economics of the business, meaning that, you know, if we put a dollar in, we could roughly get like a dollar and three cents out of it. And we thought, well, that's progress, right? Because we were just losing money before that. So the big challenge is figuring out how to scale. And I remember that, you know, we had tried a lot of things, the, the very traditional things. So, you know, uh, search and display and affiliate partnerships and editorials with bloggers and so on. Um, and I also remember having a conversation with Greg, who's now our CMO, about, hey, have we ever thought about television? And, uh, you know, we went to one of our friends that used to work at a big media agency. We had roughly a million dollars in the bank, uh, courtesy of QED. And I remember the media, uh, you know, executive saying, hey, you, you could try television, but television, you know, you're going to have to spend two, three hundred thousand dollars on a television spot. You're gonna to have to spend half a million dollars in media. And then and only then you might get lucky and get an indication as to whether it'll have the impact with consumers. And we thought, well, there's no way that's happening, going back to this idea of us being very frugal at the time. So um, rather than go down that path, we shot a commercial on my DSLR. I remember we uh, went to the sound studio and rented it for half an hour and spent maybe all of $200 on that. And we spent, you know, $20 on props. And we actually had uh, three Credit Karma employees as actors. And we shot our own commercial. Um, we put it in the can, so to speak, and actually forgot all about it. And, um, you know, lo and behold, we aired that commercial for $50 on an overnight uh, media buy. And I think we registered roughly 75 people and we could see the direct impact of one that commercial there and the spike that we saw uh, in the number of registrations that we had. And I think it worked out to something like a 75 cent cost per acquisition. Um, and sort of uh, the rest is history in that I think we were probably one of the largest remnant inventory buyers of media back in you know 2011, 2012. And at the time, I think, you know, Google Television Auction, for example, was um, uh, was a you know a thing that they were doing. They were trying to create bidding within television ecosystems, and I've never talked to anyone about it with them. But I suspect we were probably their biggest customer at the time because we were basically gobbling up as much inventory as we could because we found this thing that helped us scale, this major unlock, and we did it sort of in the most frugal way possible, leveraging you know all the things that people would say would never work, and uh, you know here we are. 
um, you know, 10 years later from that point. So there's a lot of founders and uh, aspiring entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. What At what point did you feel comfortable knowing that like this business is going to work and we're going to do okay? Because I feel like there's so many early stage people that you go through so many ups and downs that it gets to be such this like, it's a hustle, like it's emotional. And I, I, you experienced all of that before. Yeah, I mean, on some level, I'm <laughs> maybe not after Intuit, but I mean, I feel like on some level, I always felt that way. I think only the paranoid survive. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I, you know, I always talk about to the company as, uh, you know, as me being the chief optimist when it comes to the overall business. Uh, but I think, you know, many founders and having experienced, you know, the Great Recession, uh, a lot of external shocks and quite candidly, you know, multiple events that could have been extinction events or credit karma. Uh, it's always been in the forefront of my mind that, uh, you know, what you build, you can lose so very quickly, right? I mean, take, for example, you know, trust our members, a data breach. I mean, those are all things that as hard as you work, as much as you try, they can be catastrophic for the business. So um, I'm not sure there was ever a moment for me where I felt like, you know, you could take that breath. I mean, you know, uh, even today, I take all of this extremely seriously because I feel like, you know, you have such a great responsibility in regards to consumer trust, in regards to the data, to regards to, you know, Intuit and, the, you know, and the things that we've committed to. And and that's something that I think is fundamentally important is, you know, that you have to stand by your commitments. That's to your customers, to, you know, your team. Um, and the moment you take that for granted, I think there's big challenges. So, so I don't know. I don't know if I've ever really taken that breath and COVID's probably taken that breath away from me in some regards because doing everything that we've done in 2020 is, you know, been quite a challenge and looking back and the economy's better and there's been some terrible events of, of COVID obviously, but you know, it's, uh, it's always been a challenge and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm uh, ready to take that deep breath or that sigh of relief yet. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind commenting on that as well, because from a from a VC perspective, you know, there there's this gigantic disconnect between VCs and founders, where day one when you invest in a company, you know, both the founder and the VC have absolute belief, you know, that the problem that's being solved is profound, and there's a big business that can be built, and it's the right team that you've assembled, and you just fall in love with, you know, the future that you want to actually kind of will into existence. Um, the difference is that over time, you find out that you and the founders collectively were statistically wrong most of the time. So you invest with all this passion and conviction, and then three quarters or more of the time, you're just wrong. Either the business opportunity is smaller than you thought, or it's completely non-existent and you weren't able to solve it at all. So... As a VC, when you're building a portfolio of, of companies and you're putting money to work, um, you know, you end up finding these moments where you say, wait a minute, it actually is working and we're statistically right. Things are going well. Things are falling in place. And in the case of Credit Karma and in the case of a lot of businesses, the first moment that you have that light bulb go off is when you realize that you have the ability to scale a business where you already have cracked the unit economics. And when you can put the two of them together where you have line of sight to scaling and you know you can make money at the individual customer level, that's when you say, wow, how big can big be? Right? How deep are your channels? How many customers really want this? You, you stop asking, do they want it at all? You stop asking, is there a business to build here? 
and you start saying, how big can this be? And, you know, in the case of, um, you know, Credit Karma, I think it really was when Remnant Media, you know, became a cracked channel um, because the unit economics were cracked and it was a deep channel that could scale. So you put the two together and confidence just went through the roof. Sticking with you here, Frank, in like late, tw- I don't know exactly when these board meetings and whatnot happened, but like late 2019, early 2020, probably like right after I went boxing with Ken the last time I saw him in person, um, they started having very serious talks with Intuit. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on them going down that path, because I'm sure when you invested, like there were, especially when you knew that Remnant Media was working and this company's going to work, that IPO, getting bought, those were all big viable options for you guys. Talk to me a little bit about what your thoughts were on, on going down that path. Yeah. Um, look, as a, an early stage investor, I mean, we primarily invest before the code has been cracked on businesses. So think about it as foundation or formation stage all the way through the seed and series A. I mean, that's really our sweet spot. Um, it's almost a luxury when the companies actually do succeed and grow up to become big, durable, dominant businesses in their space. And we've had the privilege of being part of quite a few. Um, when it gets to that stage, it's time to start thinking about exits. It's time to start thinking about, do you want to remain independent and be a public company? And, uh, you know, at QED, we've been there and done that. We helped, you know, spin off Capital One from Signet Bank and managed a public company in the past. So we had direct operating experience on what it would feel like to be a public company. Um, But we've also sold many of our companies to strategics, right? It's another viable option. So the beauty is if you have an amazing business, you have tons of optionality. You you have options. If you want to sell, if you want to be independent, it's really just a choice because you have a great business. So it wasn't really a QED decision. In fact, it was absolutely not a QED decision to sell the company. It was a collective decision about saying, is this the right fate for the company, right? Because it was completely viable path to go public. It had the makings of a company that could do quite well in the public markets. So, I mean, Ken can probably talk about why the option was, you know, the the option of choice. But we were there to be supportive and uh, we would have supported any path, you know, with the company because it's a great company. Ken, talk to me a little bit about the sale and how things are going post sale, which, like you mentioned, it happened in 2020. So it's one hell of a time to sell a company and start integrating into another company. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as Frank alluded to, you know, um, it, it was it was an interesting option for us. And, you know, if you if you've heard me uh, talk on the the subject or, or if you really understand, I mean, a few years ago for me, um, I'd probably say about maybe five, six, seven was, you know, when I knew credit karma is going to be viable as a standalone and, you know, paranoia aside, um, what really mattered to me was our ability to make an impact. And, you know, having grown up uh, with very modest means and, um, you know, seeing how challenges the financial services industry could be to navigate, one of my fundamental beliefs and really what I was striving for with Credit Karma was to make a difference in the lives of consumers. And I would argue the most uh, sort of uh, underprivileged or the, the ones that are sort of preyed upon the most. And, uh, you know, that has been, you know, the rallying call for me is why I got up in bed every morning. And when Intuit came along, I, first, I didn't know a lot about Intuit in terms of what they were trying to do. But what really struck me, and, and I still think about this today, which was, 
you know, a lot of their materials around their mission, what they're trying to do. We use different words, but we actually quoted the same data facts. We, you know, sort of quoted the same ideas. And that really resonated with me. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, that's what got me comfortable. So we actually had the same mission. And when I go back to the idea of mission and really making a difference in the, in the space, um, you know, two things strike me is one, scale really matters, right? I think in order to change the industry, you have to be able to have enough scale that you can actually work with some of the largest financial services institutions to make that difference. And they'll only generally speaking do it if you actually have enough scale to make that happen. So I thought, uh, you know, uh, Intuit certainly, you know, ticked that box off. But also if you look at what we are trying to do from an innovation perspective, we were one trying to wrestle control of the data back from, I think, you know, large databases and large institutions back in the hands of consumers and creating a platform where a consumer actually had access to all the same information that a bank did, but we were leveraging the technology on behalf of the consumer. And what we found there was that, you know, Intuit would accelerate that mission five to 10 years. And we thought the combination of those two things would really make a big difference. And, you know, that was ultimately the, the, the driving decision. And, uh, you know, having seen the transaction happen in 2020, you know, we went, I think we, well, I know exactly, we, we announced it February 24th. I remember a few dates in my life, you know, my kid's birthday, my anniversary, and February 24th. Um, and, you know, that was actually the day that the stock market crashed, uh, literally the morning of, I think, uh, the futures had dropped. I don't, you know, frankly, you and I were on a call that morning. I can't remember how many points it dropped. I wasn't focused on that, but, you know, probably three, 400 points from a futures perspective. Um, and, you know, a lot of happened since then, uh, but I'll, I'll, you know, I say a couple of things about the partnership is one is that, you know, Intuit and Sasan never wavered from their commitment, uh, you know, through the darkest of that time period, which was wonderful. Uh, and now we're on the other side of that. We're seeing, you know, uh, a strong rebound across the whole sector and it's exciting. And, you know, the, all the opportunities that we discussed prior to even announcing the deal, um, you know, we're we're seeing materialize, you know, the things that we're able to do with the capabilities, with the data, with the trust, with the increased scale. I mean, they're all coming to fruition. So it's really exciting to see all that play out. But also, I often talk to the company about, um, you know, per, uh, uh, grit and, and being persistent, perseverance uh, in the business. And I think, you know, it's uh, it's all coming true in terms of that commitment and us getting to the other side. Frank, what following Credit Karma so closely, being a part of this journey, how does that change your view on just fintech moving forward? Seeing someone like Credit Karma succeed with um, you know the consumer option, working with financial partners, working with credit bureaus, just how does that change your investment thesis moving forward? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure it changes our thesis. Um, but what I think it does is it's one of many examples uh, of what I would call the art of the possible. And, you know, I think fintech started off as a thing no one even understood. And people were wondering, how are you going to disrupt banks? Like, is that even possible? And we fast forward 10 years from the beginning of what you would call, uh, you know, the, the fintech movement. And all of a sudden, some big seminal companies have emerged to show the art of the possible. Right, Credit Karma happens to be one of them, um, but you have companies uh, like Nubank and Robinhood. You have uh, Plaid and you know just a handful of other companies that are out there that are now you know gigantic companies that are disrupting the ecosystem. You know, on the payment side, you have Stripe and Square and PayPal, and 
you know, the uh, the art of the possible is now showing people that banks can be disrupted. You know, there are better ways of actually delivering products and services to consumers and small businesses and enterprises. And if you put the right teams and technology against it, you could build absolutely massive companies. I mean, $100 billion plus companies are now possible in this space. So, you know, I just think that Credit Karma is another great example of the art of the possible. And, you know, I, I have mixed emotions about it because for a while we were one of the specialists in the space and had this nice little magical world to ourselves. And now I think people have woken up and they're saying, wow, this could be gigantic. And, you know, the great news is, you know, I think the next 10 years are going to produce as many or more seminal companies in the space than the past 10 years did. The problem is now there's a lot of competition. So it makes our jobs a little bit more difficult. Ken, on that front, there's a lot of competition for some of your newer products that you've launched in recent months and years, such as the debit card, the checking and savings account. How are those products going? And then to wrap it up, what are your thoughts on, like, what's Credit Karma going to do with work from home in the future? Yeah, well, when it comes to, uh, you know, the new products in the space, is, you know, I think, as Frank alluded to, the opportunity area is huge. And what we see in the space is that, um, one, I should note that we think we have an amazing product and, you know, the products and features and capabilities that we've, we've built it from the ground up to be truly free, to really focus on some of the problems in this space. We're really excited about we've gained really amazing traction. Um, but more than that, you know, I think I would go and say that that's actually not even our end state. You know, if you're thinking about what Credit Karma is trying to do in space, is that we really want to go and connect all of those pieces of your financial lives and not necessarily be the end provider, but really to help consumers figure out their endpoints and optimize those endpoints. So, you know, our perspective and, and a little bit of a differentiated experience is that while we have a great product in the space, we'll work with anyone in the financial services space. Uh, because we ultimately think about the consumer journey of connecting those endpoints and making their financial lives easier with the lowest cost of financing, the you know sort of the lowest cost debit and, and financial services products, the lowest way to move money around. So those are you know our stated goals. Um, so so we think that will be fundamentally transformative. I think to Frank's point, uh, that's where the next area of innovation is going to, and that's what we're squarely focused on is bringing the next level of innovation and evolution from the banking industry. So we're really excited about that. Uh, in regards to the work from home position, you know, I always tell the team, it's really hard to be definitive about um, where you're going to go and what the long-term plan is when you're still in the air pocket, right? When you're still in the turbulence of COVID. And, you know, what we stated and, and what I really care about is one, we in Credit Karma has always been an in-person culture. I just fundamentally believe the connections that you create, the conversations around the water cooler. I like those conversations. I think they're fundamentally important for building the connective tissue of the culture that we have at Credit Karma. And I want that to persist. So we know that we, we, we don't want to be 100% remote. Um, and then I think a lot of people are looking for certainty around like, I want to know the date we're going to go back to the office, number of hours I should be there, the number of days and so on. And I'll go back to that first point, which is I think it's really hard to do that in a period where, you know, we're still, you know, work remotely. We're still in a COVID, um, you know, effectively sheltered place in the essential workers perspective. Um, and I think we're going to need a little time and space and distance. I think what COVID has taught us is that it's possible, but I'm not sure if you had choice, if that would be the choice that you make. And I think it'll be different for every company and every person. 
Uh, but I think you want a little distance from it. And I think you want to give general guidelines. I think it's hard to be precise, prescriptive, exacting in this period of time. And you know, that's what I've shared with the company. And, and, and you know, I, I think that, that you know, being very clear about that is fundamentally important because I think in this time period, again, people are looking for as much certainty as possible because they want to know whether they want to move to Austin or not or, you know, stay in San Francisco or move to New York or wherever their place is. And by the way, I think that in itself will change. You know, I think it's great to be able to work uh, anywhere at some period of time, but at some point, you know, I, I think you crave for some level of consistency, or at least I know I live, I crave for a level of consistency that I had pre-COVID. So time will tell. Yeah, I'm hoping some of the techies come back to San Francisco from Austin because I would love to be able to buy a house here and they're trying to buy them all up right now. So, <laughs> but you guys do have a mortgage offering. So I will, I'll make sure that I'll check out Credit Karma for all my tips on home purchasing uh, when I do get to that point. Uh, th this podcast was 30, almost double what we usually do. And I still feel like I could keep going for another hour, which doesn't surprise me at all with you guys. But thank you so much for taking 35 minutes to talk to me today. Um, that is it for today's episode of Tux Time, though. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thanks, Joey.